Anyhow, take your Bible at this time and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Here in John chapter 1, we have the Lord Jesus Christ beginning to gather together his church. And I believe that Christ started the church during his earthly ministry. I believe those 12 apostles made up the members. He was the pastor. And I believe they're doing everything that a local church does today. You know, winning souls, baptizing converts, sending out missionaries, having the Lord's Supper service, having business meetings, even at a treasure. That's a church in action. And so we find it in its embryonic form here in, in John chapter 1. And he's gathering the, the first of the disciples together. And I count about five-ish at this point as we get to this part of it here in John chapter 1 beginning in verse 40. The Bible says, one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Basidia, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Notice that snarky little remark of Nathanael there, if you would. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was a no-count, low-class town. But God was going to do something great from that vicinity with, of course, our Lord and, and his followers from that region of Galilee. And so we're going to be talking today about, can God still use nobodies? Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you now for the opportunity tonight to be here. And so thankful for your word to open and, and for this truth, this, this golden nugget to mine out of it. And Father, we just pray now that it would find lodging in every single heart here and that every person would in their breast want to do something for God, even though they would esteem themselves a nobody. Help us now to see that's exactly what you use. We pray now and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. There was a town in uh, England, the northeast part of, of uh, England, called Hull, H-U-L-L. -L. It was founded by King George I back in, uh, in 1299. And it was a, a, a bustling seaport town. I mean, it was really deemed to be the next London and uh, they had hopes for it. And, of course, as time marched on, it, it went through the dark ages, and it just kind of got decrepit. And then in World War II, it was bombed heavily, and, and uh, that really wrecked the town. And as, as time went on, the, the, the harbor silted up, and, and, and today, Hull is a dump. In fact, they did a survey of all the towns in England, and of the 50 worst places to live in England, guess what? Hull was number one. On the list. It's called the armpit of England, if you can imagine that. It's just a, 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 a no-count kind of a place. Well, back at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, there was a place like that. It was called Nazareth. It was his boyhood town. He spent 30 years, his first 30 years of life there. And we find here that the very mention of the word Nazareth kind of caused people to take a step back and go, really? That, that pathetic 
pitiful town. But we find from this passage here, God's going to use that place and God's going to use men from that area and God's going to use the lowly to do something great for him. The nobodies, if you will. Now, let's back up, get the scenario here. In verse number 38, it says, Then Jesus turned and saw them following, that's John, I believe, and Andrew, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, be an interpreted master, where dwellest thou? Where dwellest thou? So here's John and Andrew, and Christ at that point is just leaving the carpentry business, if you want to call it that. He's just beginning his earthly ministry. And there are two converts of, of John the Baptist. They, they have been pointed by John to Jesus, so they're following him. And, and Christ turns around, and he says, uh, can I do something for you? And, and they said, where dwellest thou? Now, that doesn't mean they were asking where you're going or where you're going to be uh, lodging tonight. It's actually in the Jewish culture kind of a hint, like they wanted to follow him. They wanted to talk to him. And uh, in, in, in our, uh, I guess, uh, in our, our culture, we would say, you know, those cookies look really good. Or we would say, man, that cake looks delicious. And we're hinting, man, I'd like some of that. Well, this is a hint. Where dwellest thou is a hint we would like to follow you. And we find out that Jesus says, come and see. Now we find a couple of, of young men here drawn to Christ, drawn by God, and a principle with this. And it goes with John six forty four. Jesus says, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me. Draw him. I find this heartwarming. I find where are those who have tender hearts in the Bible that Christ invites them along. That Christ wants him on board. He's always willing and waiting and, and never too busy to drop anything and, and minister to their needs. But I also find that when it came to the, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the smart Alex and the hecklers, Christ always held them at arm's length. And so we find here they want to follow him. And maybe you, like me, have had a time in your life where you wanted to know Christ, you wanted to know the Lord, and he revealed himself to you. Now, there's some things going to be taking place at this point that are going to be like a domino effect with men coming on board. But we see here the beginning of, of the church, if you will, and what I call, first of all, the divine projection or prediction. Notice, if you would, in verse number 41. Speaking of Andrew, it says, He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. So we have Peter here, the introduction of Peter to us. And at that time, his name was Simon. And you know, as you look in the Bible, you find, I, I count seven Simons in the Bible. Very popular name amongst the Jewish people. But, but now Christ is changing his name to Peter. And, and Peter means a piece of a rock. There are those who believe he's, he's the foundation the church started on. No, his name Petros means pebble, a, a small stone, if you will. And we, we find it interesting that this is the beginning of his name being changed to Peter. And with that, a, a divine projection by the Lord to what he's going to amount to. He's going to be a rock. He's going from Simon to Peter. Now, I find it interesting, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this in the New Testament, that when, whenever Peter was floundering or faltering, Christ didn't call him Peter. You ever notice that? He called him Simon again. 
He, he said, uh, Simon, Simon, the devil hath longed to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Simon, you're, you're, you're faltering in pride here. You're going to go down. Now, by nature, Peter was very uh, brash and he was very impetuous and, and uh, he was undependable and he was a big uh, talker. He was always the first to speak up and normally with his foot in his mouth. And he was always the, the first to rush in. He was the first to run out, just unstable. And so Christ is changing his name here. He's saying, you've been Simon up to now. You're, you're going to be Peter. And that's what we know him as. This is going to be now his perpetual name. This is still how I believe he's known in heaven, if you will. But whenever Peter lapsed, and, and whenever he, he fell asleep, for example, Christ would wake him up and he'd say, Simon, could you not watch for one hour? Whenever Peter did something dumb like going back to fishing, Christ would show up and he'd say, Simon, lovest thou me more than these? He used his old name once again. I think that's significant there. Because Peter was lapsing into his old self again. He was, he was operating in the flesh once again. And no doubt Peter picked up on this. And I can imagine every time Christ called him Simon, he just cringed because he, he knew he was in the flesh once again. Now, of course, Peter got victory over all of that, and Peter became a, a powerful preacher, and Peter was used on the day of Pentecost, and, and 3,000 souls got saved, and, and uh, he's been in heaven now for the last 2,000 years with the Lord, obviously. But you see, this is their first encounter in the Bible, and I find this very, very precious. They, they, they set eyes on each other, and they exchange their, their first word, and, and this is the beginning of something amazing that's going to happen over the next three and a half years. But here Christ predicts his future. He gives him a name change. That's important. You know, we read in Isaiah 45, 4, God says, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. That, that surnaming, that's exactly what happened to Peter here. And it's kind of a prediction. Jesus knew the future of Peter, yea, but he also knew what he wanted Peter to be. You know, I grew up in a, a large family of 11. I mentioned that last night. I was, I don't know if I mentioned of the nine kids, I was the middle one. I was number five. And so there were four on each side of me. And I'm telling you, when, when you're lost in the shuffle amongst 11 people and you're the middle kid, you just kind of learn to just hang out on your own and entertain yourself and, and do your own thing. And as growing up a, a little dark-haired boy in East Grand Forks, Minnesota, you know, I, 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 was, uh, I was interested in God. I went to a parochial school. We had church every morning before school. And, and I, I was trained by those who had gone into some type of a lifetime vocation ministerially. And, and so I thought about God a lot. And I, I drew pictures of Jesus as a little kid. And, and I asked questions, but... But that all came to a head when I was 20 years of age and somebody took a Bible and sat down for two hours and led me to Christ and I was born again. I went floating out of his office that night and kind of surnamed, I don't know what my new name was, but I just knew that I had a new life and, and a new future and, and God had a new plan for my life. And, and unbeknownst to me, God had a projected divine projection for me. You know, we read in Jeremiah 29, God says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil. Notice this part, to give you an expected end, to give you an expected end. God has an expected end for your life. He's working something out with your life. You know, I think this is a verse familiar to all of us. Maybe it's new to some of you. I doubt it, but 
In Romans 8, 28, the Bible says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according, notice, to his purpose. This has been a life verse for me. This would have been something that Christ had in mind for Peter when he surnamed him that day. He, he had plans for Peter. He has plans for us. And, and uh, I know I make plans. I know you make plans. And plans are they're fine. We ought to. But let's keep them flexible. All right? Let's be resilient. And let's, let's realize, all right, God might want to do something different. Here's another verse I like. I, I've loved it all my saved life. Proverbs 69 says, A man's heart deviseth his way. And I do. I mean, I'm ADD, I'm ADHD, I don't know what I am, OCD or all the above, but, but I'm always planning. I always have something on the drawing board by faith normally. And, and sometimes they work out, sometimes they don't. But I do know this, that God wants us to devise a way, but allow him always to direct our steps. And by the way, I think if we are trying something by faith, God can steer us. God can't steer a car that's not moving or a boat that's not moving. It's, it's got to be moving to be directed. And, and as we go forward by faith, I believe that God will direct our steps. It's, it's a marvelous thing to watch at times. You know, Abraham Lincoln was our 16th president and voted the greatest U.S. president of all time. But, you know, there was a time when, when he was an absolute nothing, nobody, he was an aspiring businessman. He had started this mercantile with a partner of his, and it flopped. I mean, they, they were going out of business. They were penniless and, and kind of closing shop, as it were, at the time. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this, this wagon comes into view with this uh, pioneer couple on it. Uh, they were heading west, and they had zero money. In fact, they looked frail and, and eyes sunken and, and penniless. And they begged... They begged Abraham Lincoln to buy something off of them so that they could buy food. Well, last thing he needed was anything else. He's trying to get rid of his own junk. They had this old barrel. They said, what will you give us for this old barrel? Well, he needed a barrel like a hole in the head. But he had a big heart. And, and so he dug in his pocket and he, he found a, a few dollars. And he gave him this, this money for that old barrel. And he took it down, he brought it into the store, and he didn't think anything of it. He just left it sitting over in the corner, and his, his partner was chiding him and, and saying, Boy, uh, great buy, Abe, and, and uh, thanks, that's what we really needed. You know what Abraham wanted at that time more than anything else? It was to be a lawyer. He wanted to be an attorney. But you know, at that time, to become an attorney, you needed something called Blackstone's Commentaries. Blackstone commentary was the standard of law at that time, but very expensive to buy. And of course, he didn't have two nickels to rub against each other. And so there he is, slumped his big frame down in that chair and drummed his fingers on the, the arms. And his friend is laughing at him. And all of a sudden he thought, well, let's see what's in the old barrel. And he walked over there and he started pulling junk off the top and, and, and more and more. And finally he stopped and he froze. He looked at what was at the bottom of the barrel and it was a volume of Blackstone's commentaries. He couldn't believe his eyes. He held him up and, and looked at it. And then he looked up and he said, at that moment, I knew that God had something in mind for me. Now, our moment might not be that dramatic. I understand that. But uh, God does have a plan for us. God has a plan for you no matter who you are. And you might feel like a, a nobody. But God didn't create you for nothing. 
In fact, I find even lost men in the Bible, the Nebuchadnezzars, and God says, I've raised them up, or a Cyrus, I've, I've raised them up, or a Herod, or a Caesar, and, and they might have even been, you know, evil people, but God didn't create you for nothing. And the reason you are here at this time in history at, at the Lehigh Valley Baptist Church is to do something for God. Be a nobody. God wants to use you. I'll guarantee you that. You know, throughout history, there are those who have been born and have had so much going for them and, and so much talent, so much brain, so, so, so much money and charisma and, and oratorical skills. And they, they've had all that, and yet they've wasted it. There was a fellow years ago, back in the late 1700s, by the name of, of Lord Byron, absolutely brilliant. In fact, they said he had the most brilliant mind of his time. But he was a wicked man. Lord, Lord Byron lived a scandalous life. He had numerous affairs with married women. He had numerous affairs with men and boys and, and even his uh, half-sister. And he aged before his time. In fact, he was decrepit by the age of 35, and, and he got very, very sickly, and he actually died when he was 36. But before he died, he made this statement. He said, my days are in the yellow leaf stage. The fruit, the flower of life are gone. The worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. Unsanctified affliction is hell on earth. He was going through the mill with absolutely no purpose. He called it unsanctified affliction. He said it's hell on earth. Here's a man who had so much going for him, and he wasted it. There was a, uh, <clears throat> a teen idol when I was a kid growing up by the name of uh, David Cassidy. Some of you might remember the Partridge family and David Cassidy, and his name was a household name. He, he was, a, he was the, 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 the heartthrob of all the, the girls at that time. They had his poster on the wall, and and uh, he, he had a national television program on weekends he toured, and he had all these hit songs, and, and boy, just the world by the tail. But you know, after he faded into obscurity and became a nobody, he went to alcohol to help deal with it by his own admission. And as he aged, his life just got worse and worse. He, he died here several years ago at a young age, and and uh, had such a sad lamentation before he died. He, he said, my, my, my life has been a waste. And his final words as he died were so many regrets. So many regrets. How would you like those to be your deathbed words? So many regrets. Kind of reminds me of the wisest man to ever live, Solomon. And yet, he makes this sad lament. In Ecclesiastes 1, he says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity. And vexation of spirit. That word vanity means it's a waste. It's, it's all for naught. It's, it's void of anything. It has no meaning and no purpose. And that's really a life without God. Now, for the, the past 50 years especially, we have a society in America that has gotten away from God. And we have seen suicides escalate at, at an alarming rate. And you have people out there, and they're, they're dying of, of, of boredom and, and meaningless, purposeless life. And they're frittering away their time on, on this stuff and electronic stuff, just trying to find some meaning and purpose to life. 
It's really sad to watch. And they, they sit all day, they, they, they watch fiction, they watch fantasy, they, they try anything they can to numb the pain of a meaningless, purposeless, boring life. Well, God gives us a life of purpose. And we find when he calls Peter out here, he's, he's given to him now a divine projection. Your name is now Peter. You have a purpose. You have a new name. You have a new life, a new reason to live. You know, the name Cephas, and that's the name that's given here, it's actually the Aramaic of, of, of Peter, though it means the very same thing. And if Peter had only known at that time, this was his moment. It's all going to start right here. There's speculation on whether this was his salvation or it was earlier or it was later. I, I don't know, but I just know this. All heaven was watching. This was a very notable moment here. And uh, we find here a very important event in the Bible. Now, we make a lot of hype uh, about Paul saved in Damascus, and rightly so. But, but this day is Peter's day. And from this point on, he will follow Christ. And his life will be significant. Christ will talk about the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Peter will preach on the Pentecost. Folks will get saved. Peter will take the gospel to the Gentiles for the very first time. Peter will suffer martyrdom. And honestly, his life would never be the same. In fact, for the past 2,000 years, it, it's all changed. Never the same. Peter was a nobody, but, but God decided to use him. And in the same way, that goes for us. That goes for us. We see a divine projection. But secondly, we see the dedicated proselytizer. Proselytizer. You say, what is that? I would define it as a, a spiritual recruiter. That's what it is. Wouldn't you say so? Somebody who proselytizes, goes out and recruits and tries to bring people and get them on board for whatever their cause might be. Well, we know what the cause of Christ is all about. Now, notice in verse number 41, it says of Andrew, he first findeth his own brother Simon. Notice the word findeth. I want that to resonate in your mind for just a moment. He first findeth his own brother. And then notice in verse number 43, the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, follow me. There it is again, that word findeth. Notice in verse 45, Philip findeth Nathanael. He findeth. Do you see a pattern here? You find those who know the Lord going out and finding somebody else and bringing that good news to them. Now, notice in verse 41, the word first. He first findeth his own brother, Simon. His own brother, Simon. He first found Simon. We find Andrew getting saved, and he goes out, and he first finds Simon. Who was the very first person you witnessed to after you got saved? You ever thought about that? Who comes to your mind right now? You got saved in that first person you findeth. Who was that? For me, it was a guy named Jack. I was an electrician. I was an apprentice. And uh, I got saved late at night. I, I didn't get home till after 10. I just went to bed rejoicing. I got up rejoicing. But I didn't see anybody during that time. So I get up the next morning and I go to work and I spend the entire day with one person. Jack the journeyman. And boy, as soon as we get in the van that morning, I start in. I, boy, you, you just never guess what happened to me. I was so excited. Now, I didn't know any Bible. And I mentioned this the, the other night. I, I didn't know John 3.16. I just knew I'd been born again. 
And uh, I had a testimony. And, uh, and so I, I used that testimony. I talked to Jack all day long till, like I said earlier, mid-afternoon. He told me that's enough, Skeving, and he, he shut me down. But who is the first person you found in order to witness to him? Now, we find here for Andrew, it's, it's Peter. That's his brother. And so it's somebody he knows. And I said last night, honestly, those are the people we kind of get timid around. Well, they know me, and I, I, I don't want to you know, be embarrassed. And, and so we go, we go to witness to a stranger, and that's fine. But those acquaintances, again, those people that you know best, you have a relationship with, that's really a good place for you to start. There was a... Uh, Preacher of yesteryear by the name of, of Gypsy Smith. Some of you have heard of, of Gypsy Smith, no doubt. And quite a story there. Well, when Gypsy Smith was a little boy, he got saved, gloriously saved. And uh, at the same time, he got a burden for his Uncle Rodney. And, and so he began to pray for his Uncle Rodney. About that same time, somebody gave little Gypsy Smith a new suit. He was so proud of his suit. He wore it all the time. But after two weeks the knees of his suit were wore out. And one day Uncle Rodney noticed that and he came up to me and he said, Laddie, he goes, uh, he goes, what happened to the knees of your trousers? And, and Gypsy Smith began to cry and he looked up at his uncle and he said, I've worn them out praying for you, Uncle Rodney. And it so touched the heart of his uncle. It, it led to his salvation. Amen. He found somebody he knew and pointed him to Christ. That's what Andrew did. You know, in, in Mark chapter 1 and in verse number 17, Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. This is what Jesus Christ hoped to accomplish with his disciples. You know, he did a lot of great miracles, but he never said, Come after me, I'll show you to these miracles. Jesus lived a perfect life, but he never said, Come after me, and I'll, I'll make you a great example. You know, we find that Jesus Christ said, come after me and I will make you to become fishers of men. He wasn't interested in them being successful fishermen or successful businessmen. He said, I will make you fishers of men. Are we living to do what Christ wants us to do? Becoming fishers of men. We're talking this week about letting our light so shine, right? Are we doing that trying to reach those that we know? You know, Christ has made quite an investment in us. If you really, you stop and you think about it. I don't want to go to heaven alone. I don't believe you want to go to heaven alone. I met a dear uh, young mother here last night with three little children and, and her husband afterwards. And, and uh, she told me she had been saved as a result of a lady in the church here who had witnessed to her. And that's a lady I've known for years. In fact, a lady I led to Christ years ago out in Fargo. Sharon showed up at our church and had an attitude. I'll just tell you that right out of the block here. And uh, she was almost looking for, well, you know. And uh, any, anyway, she came to a Sunday morning service, and I caught her name, and she left. And the next Sunday, she came back. And after the service, I shook her hand at the back. I said, thanks for coming, Sharon. Good to see you again. She looked shocked. She told me later the fact I remembered her name made the difference. She said, okay, I'll come back again. And she did. And again and again. And long story short, she got gloriously saved. It was in my barn out at, out at uh, our farm at a, uh, at a church revival conference that we're having. I'll never forget that day when she walked forward. I dealt with her. She was born again. But you know what a thrill it was last night. I told this, this young mother, it just made my day. 
To know that, that there's somebody here now that has gotten saved as a result of that. And the husband as well. And the thing is rippling out. And that's how it's supposed to work, folks. Each one, reach one, letting your light so shine and trying to make a difference. Now, the only thing better than going to heaven. You say, is there something better than going to heaven? Yeah, there, there is. The only thing better than going to heaven is taking somebody with you. Amen. Right? Does that make sense? And you know, this is really a, a great time of the year to be trying to reach folks. I mean, if you think about it, Christmas is over. Summer's still out yonder in the distance. Folks aren't on vacation, visiting grandpa and grandma. They're at home. This is really a great time to proselytize, to be a dedicated proselytizer and pray for somebody and reach out to somebody and <clears throat> just give them a word of truth. You know, it just starts with a God. The, the Bible is so powerful. God can use just a verse to get somebody thinking. This Bible is the catalyst for faith. And we're saved by faith, right? The Bible says, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So be passing tracks or offering to do the, the, the basic Bible steps of salvation or whatever you call it here. Because there's so much at stake. And heaven and hell are real. In fact, we find our Savior moved with compassion toward the lost, actually weeping over the lost. Do we have that kind of a burden? In 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul said, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And they are. They're dead in trespasses and sins. Christ died for them, and the love of Christ, our love of Christ, ought to constrain us. And that word, that word means compel us or motivate us or enthrall us. The, the love of Christ ought to constrain us. Our time is short. I have seen such an incredible change in our nation and in our world since 1981 when I got saved. It is a totally different nation. And with that, I think that people are more empty than ever. All the gadgets and the gadgets and the technology ha have left people living more pathetic, shallow, hollow lives than ever. People are empty, and they know they're empty. You know, I heard of uh, two men who were out on a Thursday night on visitation, much like from a church like this, and they were going door to door. They knocked on a door, and they heard something kind of uh, scrambling in the background, rumblings in the background, movement inside. So they knew somebody was home, and they assumed, well, you know, he's just kind of getting himself made up and, and coming to the door. So they waited, and they waited, and it was quiet again. So they, they knocked on the door again. They heard that same noise back there, and this time it, it got a little bit more obvious, and, and there was some crashing there, and, and then some thumping of feet down the hallway. And this guy comes to the door looking all disheveled and, and, and eyes sunken and hollow, and and uh, they say, we're from such and such a Baptist church, and can we come in and talk? And uh, he said, well, sure, I guess. And, and so they went to the kitchen table, and they spent an hour and 45 minutes going through verse after verse, the plan of salvation. And finally, the light came on for this fellow. It's like his heart was primed. And he called on Christ, and he was saved, and he had joy and tears. And, and uh, they thought to themselves, boy, that was easy. I mean, he was just so ready. And anyway, they were chatting afterwards, and that, 
that new convert said, gentlemen, I, I got to show you something. And he, he got up from the kitchen table and he led him down the hallway and went into this back room. And there in the bedroom, hanging from the ceiling, was a rope with a noose around it. And a chair tipped over on the floor. And that's where he was making all that noise, getting ready to hang himself when they knocked on the door. And you think of somebody who was moments between either an eternity in heaven or an eternity in hell. But there were some dedicated proselytizers who were out that night. And they were going door to door making a difference. You know, the world we live in is one without hope and one without Christ. And so we find out here that Andrew findeth Peter first. By the way, the, the wording of, of that, first findeth his own brother, it, it really implies almost in the Greek uh, a, a race to reach somebody first. Now here's John and here's Andrew and they both have the truth and, and maybe John shoots off to find his, his brother James. But Andrew findeth Peter first. That's what it means. He actually got to his brother first. And led him to Christ because he had some great news. You know, something about good news, it's very common. It's something we naturally want to share, right? You know, a few years ago, my youngest daughter was talking to her sisters and, and crying. And they're over there crying all together and hugging. And I'm going, what's this? And, and so I went over and I said, well, what's going on? And they said, Grace, you got accepted into a nursing school. And that's something she'd applied for and was waiting on. And she'd gotten the letter. And what did she do? Immediately, this great news. And so she wants to share it with somebody. You know, the word gospel means good news. We all know that. It ought to be something we want to share with people. How to be born again. We see the divine projection. We see the dedicated proselytizer. And finally, we see what I call the downcast purpose, the nobody's purpose. Now, back to verse number 45. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Jesus of Nazareth. That was his hometown. Nazareth is about 65 miles straight north of Jerusalem, as the crow flies. In fact, some folks from this church were just by there, I think, yesterday or today. And we find here that, that Nathaniel hears the word Nazareth, and he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, Nathaniel's going to go on. He's going to be one of the disciples. You won't ever find his name listed with the 12. You say, why is that? Well, it's believed by most it was actually Bartholomew. And a lot of men back then had two names, if you will. And so we find Nathaniel, and he says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why does he say that? Nazareth is a no-count town. Nazareth isn't mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in the law, the prophets. You know, there are 330-plus verses in the Old Testament that foretold the first coming of Christ to this earth. But, but Nazareth isn't mentioned amongst them. So when he hears the word Messiah and Nazareth together, he goes, what? Wait, no, they, that can't be. They, they don't go together. Nazareth had a lot of strikes against it. It was the wrong side of the tracks. It was a peasant town. It was the ghetto of Galilee. It really was. It was, it was a place where the, the lowlife lived. And there's even been recent archaeology that has kind of added to the story. 
They have learned as they uncovered the dust from Nazareth that at the time of Christ was a Roman garrison. And so you got these redneck Roman soldiers there. They have no regard for God whatsoever. And, and uh, they have a lot of time on their hands. And so you find a city here that's become a, a breeding ground for vice and immorality and corruption and, and, and Gentiles. And it was a, a rat nest. And so to say the Messiah is from Nazareth, that's impossible. What a, what a trashy town. What a riffraff town. What a coarse town this was. No sophistication whatsoever. In fact, Nazareth had well earned the reputation for being a place where people had a bad disposition. I, I, I mean, it, it was, uh, morale was low. People had a foul spirit. Remember when Christ preached in uh, the synagogue in, in Nazareth? And by the way, the footprint of that synagogue is still there today. And, and in Luke chapter 4, Christ goes into that synagogue and he, he says the G word, Gentile. And, and all of a sudden, it's, it's not homeboy made good. It, they grab him and they lead him out to the brow of the cliff over the city, which still exists there, and they're going to throw him over. That's just the attitude and the foul disposition of the people of Nazareth. Well, notice in verse number 46. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Now, he might have said this mockingly. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He might have said it in, in self-righteousness. He, he might have been, you know, chiding of Philip because Nazareth was the butt of a lot of jokes. It, it was, it was the, the bad place, the blue-collar place of Galilee. I don't know why he said this or how he said this. Uh, Philip could have been slighted by this. You know, Christians get so easily offended. It's, it's really pathetic to watch, but they do. But we find here that uh, Philip just smiles and says, come and see. Come and see. Come and see for yourself. And, and so we find here he comes to Christ, and that's another sermon. Christ chides him for his self-righteousness. But the lesson here is this. Can God still use nobodies? We, we find that the downcast do have a purpose, and God can take so little and do so much with it. You know, about an hour and ten minutes from here, you've got Philadelphia. There's an illustration that took place down in Philly a long, long time ago involving a, a little girl by the name of Hattie. Hattie wanted to go to the, the Grace Baptist Church many, many years ago, but there was actually a waiting line outside. Won't, wouldn't you love to have that day back? There was no room in the, the children's Sunday school department for little Hattie. And so she was turned away and she had to go home. And, and, and she prayed that somehow God would allow them to build a bigger building so that little girls like her could go to, to Sunday school. Well, two years after that event, little Hattie fell sick. Little Hattie Wyatt, Hattie Mae Wyatt, died unexpectedly. And as they were going through her, her, her few little belongings afterwards, they, they found this little purse and they opened it up and inside they found 57 cents with a note that said this will be for the Grace Baptist Church to help them build a, a new Sunday school building so children like me can come to church. Well, that got back to the pastor. He read the little note in front of the church. They started raising money. Word got out. In the region, and more money came in. Word got out nationally 
and people started sending money from everywhere. They not only were able to build a, a Sunday school building, they built a 3,300-seat auditorium. They built a Bible college. They built a hospital. <laughs> they, they built a university from Hattie's little 57-cent offering. You know, in America here, we have a, a real fascination for big, don't we? Bigger is better and, and, and pizzazz and big and, and all that. We supersize the fries. And, the, and by the way, supersizing all that stuff is supersizing us. But we have this fatuation with big. But you know what? God is just the opposite. God works with small. God works with the Nazareth. And, and the Bible is full of God using such little things. A little rock out of the, the brook Elah in the sling of David brings down a giant and changes a nation. God can use a little cruise of oil. God can use a widow's might. God can use a, a, a nobody like Gideon. You know, when God wanted to beat the, the Midianites, he, he picked a nobody from a nobody family, from a nobody tribe, Gideon. And he said, I want to use you. Now, the Midianites had an army of 120,000. The Jews mustered up an army of, of 32,000, a fourth the size. And God said, that's still too big. And you know the story how God whittled his army down to 300. And in Judges 7, God said, the people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, mine own hand hath saved me. And so when God uses little stuff, he gets the well-deserved credit. You know, Christ, the Bible says, without faith it's impossible to please God. And God can use like a, a, a jawbone for a Samson. God can use just a, a scarlet thread for a Rachel. God can use a, a rod in the hand of an Aaron. God can use a, a, a needle in the hand of a Tabitha. God can use a tent stake in the hand of a, a, a J.L., in, in Zechariah 4.10, God says, For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice. You know, three and a half decades ago, Fargo Baptist Church started with no members. We had no facilities. We had no radio station. We had no Bible college. We had nothing. We had no missionaries. We had no money. That's for sure. But you know, over those years, we've sung a song entitled, Little as Much. When God is in it, and God has proven that to be true. When the Jews were rebuilding the, the temple after the captivity, it, it was pathetic compared to the temple of Solomon's day. And they were weeping, but in Zechariah 4, 6, God says, this is the word of the Lord saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. You know, God can take a little grain of sand, an irritant in the mouth, of an oyster and turn it into a beautiful pearl. God can use so little to do so much. God is amazing. And, and we, we limit God, but God is not limited. In fact, in Jeremiah 32, he says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? And he doesn't have to even answer that question. You know, Hudson Taylor, who went to China and did great exploits for God, made this statement. He said, when God was looking for somebody to send to China, he looked for the weakest, un unusable, small person that he could find. And he said, that's me. We read last night these verses 
For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. So what's our goal? Here it is. Jesus said, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. Our goal is to be faithful in little. And there are those who, well, I, I want to start out at the top. No, just be faithful in little. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also Amen. in much. But the bottom line is you, you play a vital role in the kingdom. In the kingdom. What is your role? You say, I'm just a nobody. It doesn't matter. It's important to God. I've been over to London a few times, and, and in London you'll find this building, St. Paul's Cathedral. St. Paul's Cathedral was bombed heavily in the fall of 1940 by Hitler because it's like a national emblem of strength and, 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 and uh, tenacity to the British people. And he destroyed everything around it. If you've ever seen an aerial shot of it, after the firebombing of the fall of 1940, there was nothing left but this cathedral. And that's because Churchill said, let everything else go. Save the cathedral. And it caught fire in the basilica there. But a brave man went up in the attic there. He put it up. It's, it's really an amazing story to hear about it. But the story of, of St. Paul's Cathedral actually goes back to the, oh, year about 1,000, 1,022, where they built the first cathedral on that spot. And, and, and it, it, it uh, was destroyed, and they built another one, and that was destroyed, and they built another one, and, and that one burned in the Great London Fire of 1622. And so they hired Sir Christopher Wren, an amazing architect, to build this building. It's, it's sat there now for hundreds of years, almost since the beginning of the, of the King James Bible. And as they were building the old cathedral, Sir Christopher Wren went by and he saw these masons working, these, these bricklayers. And, and so he decided to talk to them just out of interest and curiosity. And he, he approached the first one and he said, uh, what are you doing there? And, and the fellow said, well, I'm a mason. I, I lay bricks. He said, I, it's a job. It feeds my family. I'm thankful for it. He asked another man, what, what are you doing here? He said, well, I'm, I'm building a wall. I'm building a wall here. Finally asked the third guy and he said, what are you doing, sir? And with a gleam in the eye of the mason, he said, I am a cathedral builder. He said, I'm building something for the ages. And he said, it's a privilege to have a small part in building the kingdom of God. Folks, it is a privilege to have just a small part in the building of the kingdom of God. That's us. That's us. That's what we're doing now. I close with this. I don't know who wrote this, but it's good. He, he, he wrote, I am only one, but I am one. I can't do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I ought to do. And what I ought to do, by the grace of God, I will do. That's us, folks. We can't do everything, but we can do something. 2,000 years ago, we find this movement beginning. And this guy's finding that guy, and that guy's finding this guy. We find this man named Philip, and he finds a fellow by the name of Nathaniel. And he says, we found the Messiah. Oh, really? Yeah. Where is he from? Rome? No. Constantinople? No. Athens? Uh, no. Nazareth. 
Nazareth, Nazareth. We find here a principle. I think it's something God does on purpose, and he wants us to remember this, that he uses nobodies. And if you're a nobody, you're perfectly qualified for God to use you to send your light at this time in history. 